0: They weren't particularly talented, surprisingly, and they weren't the best in the country at that age, but they, they evidenced all the things that you've seen probably and you know, others have seen since. They, they love the training. Alistair's a very, very sharp, very bright individual, understood the process of training. They wanted to train every day. They wanted to train more than once a day. They bounced back from the previous day's training relatively quickly and loved being outdoors, doing it.
1: Well, hello there, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, coaching, in my opinion, is a noble profession. Now, when I say noble, I mean that it requires having or showing such fine personal qualities or high moral principles. Now, obviously, not all coaches are noble, but the essence of coaching, of supporting others to a higher personal achievement underpinned by supporting the growth of a person's mindset in order to do so definitely is. Now I've coached on and off throughout my career only really probably about five or so years at the top end and it requires utter dedication and for many that means volunteering but for all it means caring, inspiring, planning and hoping, the utmost skill in communication and the means to handle the pressure of decision making and yet transmit confidence when it matters most in fact you know what we need more coaches on this podcast this podcast is about exploring such dynamics with people who have been there and done it people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth and if you'd like to support the podcast then if you could leave a review on iTunes that would be amazing this episode's guest is Malcolm Brown, a performance coach based at the Leeds Triathlon Centre, where he has partnered with Jack Maitland in coaching the Brownlee brothers, that is Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, two of the greatest triathlon racers of all time. Malcolm was previously an endurance coach for UK Athletics, coaching athletes to international gold medals at Commonwealth, European, World and Olympic level. And Malcolm has journeyed through what would be considered one of the most traditional routes for a coach, being a PE teacher by trade, coaching in his spare time, almost always on a volunteer basis. And then as the system in the UK developed, he began to coach professionally for the first in athletics and then later in triathlon. In this interview, Malcolm reflects over the long arc of his career and draws on the lessons that have kept him so stable, so cogent and wise. Malcolm tells it like it is about the state of coaching and how it's been underinvested in, how it lacks the recognition and prominence that it deserves, but ardently hopes for better and is active in creating that future for coaching. Now, Malcolm's supposed to be retired, but he's still extremely active in the coaching community, having established the Leeds Triathlon Center and recently the Endurance Think Tank. We start the conversation with a recent health scare for Malcolm, which it sounds as though, ironically, many of his athletes coached him through. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure, Steve. It's a long time since
0: we've um, spoken and I've been an admirer of your your work, um, both at the EIS and subsequently.
1: Oh, steady on. Well, I'm, I'm equally full of anticipation for our conversation, such as the depth of your experience and um, the your coaching career, your observations over the years, or maybe what's changed or what's persisted. And even now, as we speak, you're onto new ventures. But um, before we do that, I'm, we've, I've just learned from our pre-recording conversation that, that you've had some of your own Shall we say physical endeavors over the last couple of years? So, uh, Club La Santa, Lanzarote, and a heart attack. Tell me more.
0: Yes, um, I, I retired um, from work and coaching in. 2017. Um, I've done 42 years, so I didn't. I didn't give up early. I kept crap, and um, <laughs> uh, I thought, what am I going to do with myself? And I thought, I'll, I'm going to exercise and read. Um, and I found myself um, out for a wee run in the woods and finding it very difficult. And I thought, well, it's understandable. I've neglected this for a while, but three months later, I was still finding it very difficult. Um, long story short, went to the doctor, they recommended I have stents, uh, had stents. Uh, doctor said, you're fine now off you go. So I booked a holiday with my wife at the great, um, training camp in Lanzarote called Club La Santa. Um, and on day one had a heart attack 10 days later flown home, private plane, um, (laughs) but horizontal with a drip. So I didn't enjoy it very much. And then a month later, I had a triple bypass. So that that was about 18, well, no, 14 months ago now. So, um, but I'm over that now. I've been discharged by the consultant um, who's given me loads of drugs. Um, and I said, all these drugs you give me make me run slower. Uh, and he said, yes, they're <laughs> meant to. They're meant to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but,
1: they keep, but they keep me healthy
0: and so um i'm swimming going to the gym and reading and uh, not running as much nowadays but um enjoying life and get and doing a bit of mentoring as well with some coaches here in leeds um which i really enjoy
1: okay so so were you out on a run or were you were you by the pool uh, how did this happen
0: no no, no it was um uh, I'd felt a bit groggy a couple of days before we came away and I'd been to the GP and said, you know, I'm feeling a bit groggy. And I said, well, you've had stents. What do you expect, basically? Um, and I was, uh, there's, there's a three kilometre walk around a lake at Club La Santa and I was walking into the wind and uphill and I suddenly thought, I actually can't do this. I can't get to the end. Um, I was breathless, tight chest. Um, took it easy for the rest of the day, but during the night I had the, the heart attack.
1: How were those next few days for you? Well, first of
0: all, I'd just say that the, um, I ended obviously went to hospital and uh, A&E and I congratulate all those people in the hospital who dealt with me. Um, it was fantastic, but obviously the language barrier, I don't speak any Spanish, Um it was very worrying. My wife, it was just my wife and myself there. So there was no so I was in intensive care for three days or so, and then into a standard ward. Um, and Judy traveled, my wife traveled in every day, um, and out. And so I was there for about 10 days. Um, and then the, eventually, and obviously we were battling with the insurance company, my travel insurance to get them to acknowledge that I was sufficiently unwell. fly me home which they did
1: You, you you sound very matter of fact about it all malcolm i can imagine it was quite perturbing at the time it was
0: um it was for everybody i'm a bit fatalistic in some ways you know i think you do your best you control what you can control and then you have to you have to ride and be a bit resilient um uh, obviously, my wife was fantastic in terms of support she gave me. I think the month I spent in the LGI waiting for the operation, the bypass, was interesting because everybody who came to visit me was about 25 years of age and it looked as if they'd done about 100 hours training that week. Which <laughs> <laughs> all the other all the other patients look. After about five days, one of the other patients said to me, "Have you got anything to do with sport?" <laughs> <You> said,
1: <laughs> So, so you had lots of people visiting you. What, what did you do in hospital? How did you fill your time and mind? And uh, I'd imagine someone as resourceful as you didn't just sit there and and absorb it and just be cared for. I'd imagine you were still quite active, at least in the brain. What were you doing? Yeah, I was. I was. Um, I was given
0: a sort of curfew by the consultant. I wasn't allowed off the ward at all. Um, we made the mistake of asking that, you know, because even, you know, four walls is drives anybody nuts, I think. So I was ho- rather hoping to be able to extend my walking regime I was doing. Um, they said no. So I then recognized that I was in a difficult situation psychologically, really, to, you know, because you didn't know when you were going to have the operation. It, you know, it was like, will we'll tell you 24 hours beforehand um, but it won't be for a few days and this went on for 31 days and nights um, so it, it, it wasn't easy so um, I thought well who's suffered more than this in their life and written about it and I thought Nelson Mandela um, <laughs> The Long Walk to Freedom and so I thought well there's two wins here one is It's a very big book, which I've got at home, and I've not yet managed to get through it. And two, there might be some tips for me. (laughs) And so um, I started off with A Long Walk for Freedom and
1: um, felt good about things,
0: you know, after what he'd been through in his incarceration on Robin Island.
1: If I'm not mistaken, he was in in his cell, but jogging on the spot, doing press-ups and exercise daily, um, yes. I remember reading that book on my honeymoon. <laughs> it wasn't the <laughs> cheeriest read on my honeymoon, actually. But uh, what what a sobering read for a sobering or a, a, a re- very real moment in your life. We must go back and acknowledge that 42 years of, of um, coaching that you before you've retired. And if you could just give us a bit of a context as to Kind of your early years and your background in sport and and what led to your coaching career, if you could just set the scene those those years ago.
0: yeah, well, I think I, I think of myself as very fortunate, uh, Steve, in that. Um, I love sport, um, all sports when I was uh, you know an early teenager um, and um, I went to a grammar school, which although it was very, uh, unimaginative in very many ways in terms of its academic flexibilities and approach. Um, it, it did value um, sport, physical education, and I um, lapped all that up. Um, at the same time at home, when I got home, my my father was, um, my dad was a runner. Um, and he ran every day of his life until he was could run no longer when he walked, until he could walk no longer, and then he passed on. Um, but he was, he was a fine runner, and he ran for Great Britain, um, uh, the south of England, ran with Bannister, um, was selected with Bannister for what was called then the three A's to run at the, what was then the White City, so he was a successful athlete, and I always had that role model, although I avoided being a runner for a number of years um, uh, because I enjoyed football, basketball, swimming, you name it, um, and eventually thought, how can I get a job in sport? Well, back in those days, unless you were a professional sportsman, there was only one thing to do, and that was become a physical education teacher. There were no... Obvious jobs in sport, there were very few national coaches and you certainly had to be, you wouldn't get one of those jobs at 18 or 19 or 20 years of age. So um, I went in to be a phys ed teacher. Um, But as I say, you know, a massive influence was my father and his friends Um, uh, in terms of teaching me, not sitting me down and teaching me, but, you know, I absorbed Lessons on the values of sport, how important it was to personal development, um, and other lessons um, from home at the same time.
1: So, so you had a role model, it was vicarious learning, looking up to, to to your father, but but other others around that that environment, and thinking, I need to be spending time working in that field because that looks fun, it's absorbing. Um, and interesting and so you, you I presume you went on then to the PE teaching uh, and then into maybe coaching I decided to apply
0: to the local physical education college um, in southeast London which is called Avery Hill College It's sort of part of the University of London network I had an offer for um, a university studying uh, English, I think it was, but I turned that down, well, didn't go, um, in order to go to phys college. And at Avery Hill, I was very, very fortunate because um, there were effectively 30 of us in the year, 30 males, 30 females, and separated in those days, the males from the females. And um, I had two fantastic tutors. Um, One who was very practical and taught you how to teach and coach, a guy called Pete Simons. Um, So he was outstanding, practical teacher stroke coach um, and encouraged me to take all the coaching awards I could in all the different sports, um, teaching and coaching awards, which I did alongside the four-year degree program, as it turned out. And then on the other hand, every every so often the the door of the gym would burst open and in would come a man called Don Anthony, uh, who was the head of department, who had just got back from an IOC meeting, usually somewhere in somewhere exotic like Athens or Monaco, and he would say, "I was talking to um, Philip Noel Baker the other day uh, about the values of international sport, you know," and uh, he would. He gave us the perspective of the international dimension of sport, and Pete gave us what to do on a cold Thursday with 30 kids on a damp playing field in southeast London. Uh, It was a great combination.
1: I love that. So that you had you had the practical, deep, skillful, tacit knowledge from Peter Simons, but you also had the broad, big picture. Perspective of of what's out there in the big bad world from Don Anthony. There, it sounds like you had a, the the head down, head up perspectives both in in two characters.
0: That's exactly it, and I think it was a fantastic combination uh, um, for me personally because um, I was interested in both. You know, it wasn't as if I. I uh, and they showed me the importance of both as well, you know, even if I hadn't been interested in both. I was always interested in exercise physiology, biomechanics. Um, but I was also interested in how, how societies organise themselves, how sport is organised, uh, why some societies value it more than others, why some are more successful in terms of generating participation levels or, or being successful at the Olympic Games. Um, and so on and so forth and back in the sort of 70s that was um that was an unusual well I don't know whether that happened in all in all colleges it probably did but these two characters you know I'm 71 now and I was 18 19 at the time so they still loom large in my imagination as uh, great influences and I'm grateful to them.
1: You had an interest in athletics basketball, football, did you specialize? What was your, what was your routine there? Did you, did you start to, um, go and focus down on one particular sport or did you continue to, to keep that variety? I kept that going till I was 16, 17 that variety. Um,
0: but I, da- I dabbled in, um, in, in middle distance running at that age as well. And I had a limited amount of ability but enough to win local school races and uh, I think about the age of 18 I, I I decided I wanted to explore any potential I had in being a, a middle distance runner so um, when I went to college um, whilst I took part in obviously in all the practical sessions on all the different sports Um, I would also be running and endeavouring to to pursue my athletics. uh, But I wasn't wasn't very successful in the sense of uh, um, every six months or nine months, I'd find myself injured, having three months off, trying to get back again. I learned a lot about how to avoid injuries uh, too late, by and large. Um, Sports medicine was in its, if it existed, it, it wasn't easily available in those days, um, unless you were an international athlete. And I wasn't. Having picked up a lot of, as I say, coaching awards in other sports from the age of about 21, 20, 21, to 28, 29, I trained hard in the gym every day, sorry, running every day in the gym two or three times a week and tried to do my, my best. Um, but unsuccessfully, really, in terms of Successful in some ways, I think, because I I had insights that you get from being a performer um, as opposed to standing on the sidelines looking at it as a spectator.
1: Yeah, so how, how formative were those ups and downs? Repet- repetitive injury, continuing to, to pick up niggles and have to go again, um, learning as you go or, or troubleshooting. I, I'm often curious about... Uh, this idea of, of athletes transitioning into being a coach and bringing that vast experience of what it takes to compete in, that, in the top arenas. But uh, often sometimes when ath- athletes have been really successful, achieved at the top end, they don't necessarily convert to, uh, to being a coach, whether that's the skill of being able to nurture somebody, explain the, what they're looking for them, But equally, handling some of the ups and downs that they might not have experienced as an athlete.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely right. The you know, developing a a form of intelligence around the process of training. uh, What are the priorities? And and in an endurance sport, uh, it's absolutely essential that you limit injury days, Um, the number of sessions missed through injury. Um, And I mean, a a practical example of that, Steve, is in 2012, February, 2012, leading into the London Olympics in July, August. Uh, I was coaching Alistair been coaching him for a number of years. He, um, Alistair Brownlee, he tore his Achilles tendon. Um, This was a major issue. You know, he'd won every, he'd won every race the previous year. He was a world champion, the reigning world champion. He's twenty two years of age, plastered all over the London billboards. You know, I tore my Achilles tendon, <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I was twenty five years of age, and although absolutely not saying there was anything like the sort of issues around my Achilles, as it was his Achilles. Um, I knew a lot about Achilles tendons. I knew how they operated, you know, uh, in terms of why they were there, what they did, uh, how long they took to repair, what sort of, you know, and I could have both reassure um, Alastair and have intelligent conversations with physiotherapists about how we were going to get out of that particular hole um, because of the knowledge of having been a performer with a similar problem 30 years earlier
1: so you had a you had a uh, alistair had a a coach that was deeply empathetic as well as um but but then really it's one thing having an injury as an athlete and then going on to coaching but it's also you've had an injury and you've got curious about why and how and the mechanisms and and studied that as an idea, not only for your own return to to fitness, but that you've used that later in your career.
0: Yeah, and I I do, I mean, I'm not one of those people who says that if you haven't done a sport, you can't really uh, know it. Um, But there is a form of knowledge. um, There's a guy called Gilbert Ryle, philosopher, talked about it, really, um, which is comes from participating and performing the sport just as a dancer you know if, if we talk about dancers I'm sure they will talk about forms of knowledge from endeavoring to perform which if you haven't done if you haven't done it is much more difficult i think to find the words and to find the understandings it's not impossible but it is much more difficult so in triathlon, for instance, I've never, although I was a bit of a swimmer when I was young, I've never um, taken on the swim coaching of the boys, uh, the Brownleys, or anybody else, because I was never a competitive swimmer. I don't know it, whereas I did spend 10 years trying to run the 800 metres, fifteen, five thousand, ten thousand, 5,000, 10,000, and marathon. And I think I know what that training process is as a different way from um, from if I'd read it in a book or done a coaching course.
1: And how much does your coaching practice differ than if you're on your specialist topic in a mastermind style um, in middle distance running, for example, or if it is a if you' if you're mentoring or guiding other coaches or working in sports that are not, do you still maintain that that open, almost curious almost naivety to your questioning that can really add value when you don't necessarily know the sport but you're forced to take that tack versus when you have that specific knowledge sometimes you're already thinking oh I know the answer to this one without doing the due diligence of asking the questions. Well
0: I I think I've got a, a I mean I don't know but I think we have different models of coaching um, generally across different sports and within sports, and um, I I, I sometimes portray some of them as um, uh, mechanistic. Really, that you know, we need to know more about drag coefficients and uh, power outputs, um, and treating the athlete as an extension of the of the equipment. You know. Mm. Um, if only we can get the athlete to behave like they bike, then, <laughs> um, then we'll be fine. Whereas, um, another conception of coaching is that, yes, we need to know about drag coefficients and power outputs, but actually there's a vast difference between one athlete and another. And, um, when an athlete comes to you and says, or maybe not even says it, when they walk into the coaching environment and you look at them and you know that it's not right, that they're knackered, but they don't want to say that because they don't want not to do the session, but you know, then you, know, you have to find the words that enables them to be honest about their condition before you modify whatever session you put on training peaks or somebody put on training peaks uh, from the comfort of their office before they saw the contact with an athlete. So um, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm I'm agreeing with you that finding the right words, and I know you do some great work in this area with support staff, um, finding the right words at the right time um even though you probably sometimes know the answer is a critical part of being a very good coach
1: okay so i'm hearing there the importance of being face to face so that you can read the body language you can pick up the subtle symptoms whether that's in their gait or their mood or their interaction with others um or how their eyes look, some of those subtle symptoms that, that perhaps there isn't a physiological marker for, but are almost uh, a melee of symptoms that show you that perhaps they need a different type of input. But I'm also hearing there, that you have to create the right conditions, have the right setup and the right culture, so that you're so, so, so that they are being honest with you and direct, whereas the association between effort and improvement is so strong that they don't want to sort of show lack of effort or lack of engagement and miss the session.
0: Again, a practical example, you know, one of the telltale signs with Alistair Brownlee, who's a ferocious trainer, um, you know, when he walks into the training environment with Johnny Brownlee, Who's his biggest rival on Earth? Um, I don't expect Alistair to say, "I'm knackered." As 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 our relationship went on, he, he 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 did open up on that. But in the in the formative years, but what I did discover um, was when he was very tired, he he you could see it in his face. He sort of had rings around his eyes, like we all do when we're tired. <laughs> I then know that he's very tired when I see those, and then I have to formulate a, a question which enables him to say, okay, or maybe not, not even have the conversation. I just changed the session because one of the, one of the key things that I used to do and seemed to work with the athletes I coached was not to give significant forewarning of what we were actually going to do where they knew the zones that we we're going to work in on particular days but they didn't know the session which then meant i didn't have to have the conversation about changing it if they didn't know it beforehand if you see what i mean
1: hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting idea that seems to be being almost rediscovered whereas the advent of periodization and planning and uh for s- for sports, at a global or national level, they're having to put these big plans together. But actually, what tends to happen is that you shift those plans every day. And if you put put it down on paper and it's a plan, then everyone expects that that's going to get delivered. But that might not be what you need to do tomorrow in response to what you're hearing from athletes. So you've got a tactic there specifically not to publish in advance so that you don't have to then have another Perhaps wasteful conversation of trying to move the goalposts.
0: Well, w- wasteful and, and, and you know, in, in a public environment, um, potentially you know, damaging really and confidence sapping. Um, uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so it's one of the one of the sort of, uh, kind of mild tensions I, I might have with um, I might have had on times with you know the sort of British triathlon. Um, where, understandably, they were wanting. Well, you know, what are you doing with <laughs> our, our athletes? Um, and I'm very happy to tell them what I'm aiming to do with the athletes. Um, but there's absolutely no point in me saying. I mean, and bear in mind, the, we're in we're in the north of England here, uh, in Leeds, uh, and the weather. This morning will be very different from the weather, t- weather tonight. We can't even plan two or three hours ahead uh, with any massive accuracy in terms of training sessions. The majority of the sessions that the boys and the girls in Triathlon do are outside, they're not indoors. So it's not a sort of hermetically sealed uh, velodrome or swimming pool that we're dealing with, um, let alone hermetically sealed individual athletes. Um, So, yes, planning is critical, you know, uh, incremental progression, where we're going, uh, training zones, VO2 max, lactate threshold, polarized training, all the rest of it is critical. Um, But more critical is the ability to vary it in the light of
1: circumstance. Hmm. So let's, um, I'm keen to ask you about your current work and, uh, specifically around triathlon and the Brownleys, but let's just, you know, can I just fill in the gap there in terms of your route into coaching and then how that, how that changed or developed you over the years? Having graduated, um, from
0: Avery Hill stroke University of London, um, and got a couple of teaching jobs one after the other, uh always trying to be an athlete. And then in one of the gaps, injury gaps, um, I started uh, advising some of the kids at school, you know, want to be runners, athletes. um, And that took the coaching awards, became a senior coach by the age of 30. um, What was called then a senior coach, um, level four coaching, I would suggest. Um, And then I thought in those days that once you became a level four coach, uh, the Federation would send you loads of athletes who wanted to be coached, and it was deafening silence. Nobody nobody wanted to be coached. So I carried on working with the kids at school and um, then worked in universities, went to Queen's, um, Ulster, Edinburgh, Leeds, um, and always coached whoever turned up at the track, really, which was Nine out of ten of them were students, as you'd imagine. Um, And uh, then became a national event coach. I had some people who ran very fast, um, got on British teams, went to the Olympics and became what they called then, in the days before the lottery, national event coaches. Um, Always coaching Steve on a sort of voluntary basis, really. Um, Because, as we said right at the beginning, there weren't many Paid coaching positions, and I, I sort of enjoyed coaching too much to take it on as a job. Um, I could do it my way, with who I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. And if I, I had a couple of chances to um, be national coach with UK Athletics, you know, I was interviewed and offered the post, and um, I sort of said no in the end. Um, because I always felt a bit, I've always been a bit of an independent person, anyhow, a bit of an outsider, and I, I didn't, I didn't want coaching to be my job because it was so enjoyable. That it was a break from my job, when I had a job, um, and a therapy, <laughs> um, rather than a chore. So.
1: That's yeah. really interesting. So you're maintaining your PE teaching, I'm assuming there, um, and sustaining your coaching in the evenings and the weekends uh, as a therapy. That's an interesting one. Coaching is therapy. I haven't heard that one before, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it, it, um, you know what it's like when you've you know you've had a stressful day at work and you walk out. Um, one of the reasons I, I took the job at Leeds as director of sport was because it had a track outside the window of the director of sports office. Um, and I could just walk out. Um, and there's something beautiful about it, the symmetry of a, a track, I find. Um, and although the one in Leeds isn't the most beautiful environment, <laughs> <laughs> um, the one at Mary Peter's track in Belfast is the, probably the best Um but there is a beauty about it and a symmetry, and um, and I just felt completely at home, um, uh, and I felt hurt at home with the individuals, you know, there was no money changing hands, um, pre-lottery, um, The most of the athletes I coached got to British level, um, and any money they got from the shoe companies was trivial, and I didn't want any of it because um, they weren't making enough to, you know, probably to pay their mortgage even. So um, there was a sort of a very, they knew I was doing it because I wanted them to be more successful athletes. They thought that. Uh, I like the fact they trusted me and turned up Um Actually, I was trying to make them better people, but um, I never let them know that.
1: So that's interesting. That then that so you didn't necessarily take the money or the pound from the people or the federations. Um, I'm curious to know from your side if you can look back and understand whether the, your decision making, because you had that freedom and that independence, was any different from perhaps those. Uh, or uh, maybe in your career or others that you might have observed where their decision-making is altered by the contract that they're holding and being paid to do?
0: I don't think there's any doubt about that.
1: Um, And, of course, later,
0: subsequently, jumping forward, you know, in 2009, um, British Triathlon very kindly entrusted me with looking after the Brownleys, for the next you know, six, seven, eight years and paid me. Um, um, but I'd had 30 years of not being paid and I was in the fortunate situation of being able to shape the environment that we were working in, um, in the main, to the way that I felt was the most beneficial to the athletes. Without any consideration of um, compromise because of being paid, and basically, um, I was I felt my accountability as an unpaid coach and later as a paid coach was only to the athletes and their development, um, and not to any anything else. And and clearly, that's you know a bit of a tension because. Um, performance directors, um, whilst they understand that um, also want you to turn up at meetings and share your training peaks and, 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 and manage, manage everybody, you know, um, and relate to everybody. I understand all that. Um, but also, as I said earlier, I enjoyed my independence and autonomy as a coach.
1: So as you're as a coach, then perhaps you're, you're showing some you're shielding the athlete a little bit from perhaps the governance of the sport, uh, the what's in the best interest of the whole a system, maybe a centralised programme. Um, but ultimately, those those things might not necessarily contribute to the success of that particular athlete. And what I'm hearing there is is I've been entrusted to try and convert this super talented performer and performers into an international standard winner. Uh, and so I'm going to do everything I can to create that environment, set the program, set the culture up for that project.
0: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, I'm not a great lover of, you know, f- phrases like no compromise, Um in many ways, but I, 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 I feel that my accountability was always to the athletes. Um, and I didn't want a series of voices around me, which, um, or around them, which might give different messages at different times, which is so easy because. You know, at one stage I counted up the number of people who were in Alistair's direct daily training environment and there was 12 and then Johnny was 11 and non Stanford was had about 10 and Vicky, had, Vicky Holland had about 10. They weren't all the same people. And I was trying to get them all to say the same thing. <laughs> um, it's almost impossible, isn't it? It's almost impossible, you know? Um, so if an athlete says, I feel I've got a bit of a niggle in my knee and you know, I knew they were going to say that I would want 12 people to say the same thing back, which was either. Don't worry about it because you've had it for six weeks and it will eventually, you know, we're trying to resolve it. It's not a major issue. You can train well. Or this is a major issue and we need to scan it and inject it and send you off to the best knee surgeon we've got in Leeds. You know, they're very different, (laughs) different messages. And they, you know, you can when you've got 12 people in an environment, often it's not easy to get the same message. And okay. I I always felt that I had that autonomy and authority, if you like, um, till the last year, I, I would suggest, you know, when I retired, that um, I was in control of the
1: messages. So you, you speak there to uh, the evolution of coaching and the responsibilities that you've got a, a a beautiful symmetrical track, you've got a stopwatch and you've got your athletes, maybe you've got some plane tickets to to the Olympics. It was a, a simplicity to to that. And what comes with the advent of maybe the sophistication of the science and the support teams are a changing and a evolving responsibility for the coach to be a manager or a leader, to, to cajole the team, to, to provide consistent voices, to, to channel your, the inputs so that you've got clean decision making. And that's certainly when I took coaching responsibilities on the Beijing Olympics, having already supported athletes for over a decade as a, as a scientist, when I took on that mantle of coaching, there was a switch where I just wanted people to be quiet, (laughs) stop, stop throwing ideas and voices because, uh, my presence and my, my focus is around the decision-making for that athlete at that given moment in time.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think that's a, a critical issue really is, um, it's completely understandable that you know practitioners who have been employed and asked to support um, want to make a major contribution or an appropriate contribution uh, to the development of athletes, and that's obviously what they're there for. Um, and um, one one of the key uh, cultural issues that we had at the Leeds Triathlon Center was that we wanted all those voices and those initiatives to be filtered through the coaches committee that met every Tuesday uh, before they went to the athlete um, so that they could be in a sense evaluated, but that's probably not the right word, about whether this particular initiative or whatever it might be uh, was appropriate, uh, was appropriate at this time of the training cycle, was appropriate to this particular athlete at this time of the training cycle. Uh, the, or, or if others' athletes found out about it, do they get involved, you know, and so on and so forth. So the slightest Amendment to the training environment had to, in the Leeds Triathlon Centre, come through the coaches' committee. So, the coaches led with input from the athletes, significant input from the athletes, uh, depending on the athletes, some more so than others, led the creation of the training environment. And that is absolutely critical, in my view. And I think one of the difficulties that we've had um, in British sport is that I'm not sure we've developed the coaches roles and skills and competencies sufficiently to deal with all of that. And I think we've put above them performance directors who feel they have to do that, obviously do have to do that, but may not understand the downsides of those interventions as well as the upsides if they're not from the sport and haven't done the coaching does that
1: make am i making that sense here i just rambled on a bit no not at all i I think that that speaks to an interesting tension and i've certainly i certainly look at my time in the institute system and at the olympic association or certainly back in the late 90s when i first was integrated into that system at the boa that actually coaching development was was at the fore Um, it was a big priority for national governing bodies. The the BOA delivered a number of coach development initiatives. And then I suppose my regret in many ways is uh, that the science and the therapy and the the medicine side really developed. And I'm wondering whether it developed at the expense of the priority being put to, to coaches and helping coaches and, help coaches change and adapt to a growing landscape Um, because ultimately they're going to be the the people that utilize science medicine and help that support an athlete. Um, But what you're there talking about is is some of the growing tensions for a coach, but equally whether a performance director with the the knowledge and the empathy and the skill set and the understanding of what a coach has to go through every day um, whilst also trying to administer a sport in the right direction.
0: Yeah, well, it's very interesting you say that because um, back in the day I applied for and was offered a job with the English Institute um, as a, one of their nine regional managers. This was before the Institute actually existed in physical sense. And um, I was interviewed by Steve Cram, chair and Wilma Shakespeare, incoming chief executive officer. And I said, I felt that the, they said, they said, what, what's your vision of the English Institute? And um, so I told them, and one of my questions to them was where is coaching going to be in the English Institute? And Wilmer Shakespeare, who, as you know, stayed for three or four years um, as the first chief executive said, We haven't got coaching in it yet, but we will have. Later I went on the board of um, English Institute with the intention of um, increasing the influence of coaching within the organization. Many of the problems that British sport have had recently in a number of different sports have stemmed from issues around coaches and coaching. Um, And I'm not surprised because I don't think we have invested sufficiently across all the organisations in the continuous professional development of our coaches. What would you like to see, Malcolm? I'd like to see that coaching should require a level of study and practice uh, and then commitment to professional development, which is significantly greater than my understanding at the moment. I I recently, I don't know if you were aware, um, Steve, I was asked um, nine months ago to conduct a review of um, uh, performance coaching and support in British athletics, UKA. And I finished that, uh, interviewed 30 to 40 coaches and finished that in uh, October um and obviously i know the coaches in triathlon very well um over the last 10 15 years um and in both cases at different levels and in different ways at different sports um i'm not sure that the support for those coaches in those two sports um has been successful in fact i know it hasn't <laughs> um and as you know, every so often, every six months, there's a, a cultural review of a particular sport because a coach has said something, done something, been accused of something inappropriate. Um, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, we haven't invested in coaching and coaches.
1: And this is part of your thinking about developing uh, these recent initiatives, the Global Coaching House, Endurance Think Tank, etc. Is that, is that part of your your hope and your plan that there's a legacy the endurance think
0: tank really came out of the siloed operation of british sport whereby we can all be training to go to tokyo in heat and humidity but the marathon coaches might not be talking to the road cycling coaches and the road cycling coaches wouldn't be talking to the triathlon coaches and the triathlon coaches wouldn't be talking to the the rowing coaches, for instance. Um, mm. And I suggested that we might meet two or three times a year and chat about endurance matters, you know, acclimatisation, acclimatization, uh, altitude training, how to measure volume, you know, all sorts of things. And I'm delighted to say that for the last two to three years that a group a cross sport group has, has been meeting to discuss those matters called the endurance think tank, chaired by Jörg from British Triathlon, who's a coach performance coach developer.
1: Sounds sounds like a brilliant idea in the sense that you you get the badge or you get the T shirt and you go off and you work with various different sports and you're committed to that. And and obviously there's this time out to to develop maybe a practice in other areas, but equally to cross-fertilize and to make the system more efficient. Uh, There's some learning over here. Can we learn it? Can we adapt it and and shape it over here rather than you having to reinvent the wheel each time?
0: Yeah, I think, um, and also what coaches tend to want, I think, you know, and this was confirmed in the last six months when I interviewed so many performance coaches in British athletics. They they want forums where they meet other coaches. Hmm. Um, it feels a bit lonely, you know. You feel a bit exposed when you're coaching at times, and unless you've got a a support group, um, which you can rely on, and you know, sometimes just being within a one sport is a wee is a wee bit uncertain you know if you, if you say something to somebody does that get back to the performance director can can you admit your your weaknesses uh, in front of certain people um where do you go to get the best you know for instance barry barry fudge has done so much work on altitude training over the years um that if i were in another sport and i wanted to know about altitude it'd probably be the first person i'd go to if i knew about barry fudge um, and had been in forums with them, and an endurance think tank has has um, has created that for just a small group of the head coaches in a small group of endurance sports. But that that cross fertilisation should be a key asset of the British sports system because we have a number of professionalised sports, who and we've got, we're a small island. We can get together, and um, we wouldn't necessarily have to rely on this technology that you're relying on to do it. Yeah,
1: interesting. So, Malcolm, can I can I take you back then to two thousand and nine, and when you were first charged by British Triathlon to to look after the Brownie brothers, Alistair and Johnny, and um, what were your uh, what were your initial impressions? What were your initial observations, and and how did the the relationship strike up thinking again three years ahead of that you're going to be faced with not only the London Games but also London Games with an Achilles (laughs) eventually Uh, but what were your initial impressions of working with this raw talent? Well
0: I I was very fortunate in that I'd started with them when they were 16 and 14 respectively their dad had brought them to that um, that symmetrical running track one evening Uh, I thought it was totally coincidental that it turned up when I was there and there was nobody else around, so we, but apparently it was planned by him um, to come and have a chat with me and um, asked if I could help and I could. I just, did, as director of sport, had appointed a couple of years earlier uh, Jack Maitland, so it was about 2005 I think, um, as the director of triathlon in the university um, on a 50% contract. The other 50% was with British triathlon. Um, So he had a full-time job. Um, uh, His job was to look after the talent in the north of England for British triathlon, which he did. They weren't particularly talented, surprisingly. Um, They weren't the best in the country at that age, but they they evidenced all the things that you've seen probably and others have seen since. They they love the training, Uh, Alistair is a very, very sharp, very bright individual, understood the process of training. They wanted to train every day. They wanted to train more than once a day. They bounced back from the previous day's training relatively quickly and loved being outdoors, doing it. I was fortunate, Steve, in that I'd I'd done a a wee bit of work and had it published in uh, athletics journals 10 years earlier on the transition from junior to senior in endurance and because what at that time what what had happened is that Britain had produced a number of outstanding junior athletes who hadn't gone on to senior great senior success Um, and I did a study of them uh, looking into their training as best I could find um, and found that there were certain things that they did that were excellent and certain things they admitted which really put a ceiling over their f- potential development as seniors. What, what sort of things, Malcolm? Well, what, what they did, they did large volumes. It was a time when a guy called Arthur Lydiard's philosophy was mm. you know, um, strong, quite rightly. Um, so these were 18-year-olds who were running 80, 90, 100 miles a week. Um, but what they weren't doing was w- w- working on their weaknesses, which was their uh, Speed, their agility, their gym work. They were running and they were running fast and they were breaking, in some cases, the world junior records, you know, European junior records, winning European titles. But none of them went on and won a European senior title. One did out of about seven or eight. Um, and then I, I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I looked at our great athletes who had won senior titles and looked at what they had done as juniors. And I found that they did do a lot of speed work, relatively speaking, I'm talking about speed here, that they were more concerned with you know coordination and balance and stuff. So when the Brownies came to me at the age of sixteen, I did my level best to persuade them and I was successful that running drills, technical work, gym work, coordination, balance, uh would help you win the olympics by one stride and it might only be one stride between the two of you whose stride is it going to be alistair johnny and um i think they reluctantly agreed to do stuff that wasn't um as far as they're concerned endurance and um but it did give me mean that i had the confidence to know that the direction we were going in was the right direction as much as you can ever know that, Steve, you know, you can never really know that until, until the results come in. Um, And I think they were fortunate to meet me when I had that information and I was fortunate to meet them because they are exceptional young people.
1: And okay. So there's uh, a diligence there. There's this covering your back with doing conditioning. There's, even if there is a, ten, a slightly more tenuous link or indirect link, should I say, about that type of work with, with endurance qualities, it's underpinning or it's, it's a foundational work. And, um, and what did you meet in terms of the psyche and the, and the mental approach they bring? You, you mentioned earlier that they're both ferocious trainers. Um, and, and how were you able to work with the, the psychology of those two athletes together?
0: Well, well, there were some u- unique challenges, really, as you can imagine, because um, they were very competitive with each other, which most of the time they managed remarkably well, but occasionally spilled over. And then there was the issue of, although they were training for the same event, they, they, they had physiological and physical differences that needed to be catered for as well. And then, obviously, classic situations were Alistair injured in February, out of action for two months. 2012, Johnny going to the first World Series race of the year when everybody was there from all over the world winning it. That was a tough situation for Alistair to have to deal with. And the coach needed to be aware of that. You know, In some senses, they were the easiest athletes I've ever had to coach because they loved training. They loved competition. They competed well and didn't underperform by and large. But they're both very, very clever, and they're both very bright. And you know, embracing that and embracing their understanding of the processes, whilst keeping it going in a particular direction, the training, not deviating from what I, from what I felt was valuable to them, um, was 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 a bit of a balancing act. And um, I think if I'd been a younger coach, I would have struggled because they were. I had to let some things go like how much they trained, uh, some of the training venues that they chose, some of the races that they chose for the greater good. You know, I had to say, well, ultimately it's their career. This is a fine judgment. They've made that judgment. I might be on the other side of that fine line, but it's their career. Go with it, you know. So those are the sorts of things, really.
1: So in some ways you have a resourceful pair of athletes there that that – when you're able to explain a concept or explain your rationale you probably don't have to do a lot of extra work to engage them to to, to motivate them they're often running um, but equally that they want to have that decision making around where they train what they train uh, the the venues that they compete at um, so they're resourceful and empowered <laughs> but they're resourceful and empowered <laughs> that's what I'm hearing there.
0: Yeah, and, and somebody said to me, you know, one of my co-coaches said to me, um, Malcolm, you know, over the years you've given them over a thousand training sessions and they've changed too. I, I think it was the strength of the relationship was they, they knew that they could change things if they wanted to. They knew that I wasn't going to dictate. They were in charge. They were in control. But they didn't exert that that uh, that that freedom to do that. You see what I mean?
1: Mm. And and has the relationship changed over the years?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I was much more. I mean, they were naive, you know, in many ways in terms of their training. Um, and Jack Maitland and I co-coaches. Um, help them learn and develop as did their training partners in in cycling and in running you know and I, I made sure I, um, the the influences um, around them in terms of running training partners were good solid reliable experienced people who would who would say the right things at the right time um, but that relationship is definitely changed from um, my being more um, more s- significantly creating the training environment and the structure of the training week uh, to them having adopted that. And then they're still doing it now, that training. <laughs> so we don't really talk very much about it. It happens in different places now. So Hawaii or Spain or rather than uh, uh, Ilkley. Um, but it's fundamentally the same, and 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 really, I think they would say that on the, on the, on the occasions they've strayed away from it. Um, it hasn't really worked too well, and that now we're going into Tokyo Olympics, they very much are adopting the similar patterns to pre Rio, pre London.
1: And when you've got. Um... When you, when you have success early for for an athlete, did you say 21 or 22 for Alistair by the time you got to London and then success again? I mean, he's been one of the best single-day racers in triathlon, probably in many in any other sport. Um, and how does success change the psyche of when you've got to do something different to perhaps win again or again? Or maybe as you're getting a bit older and, and things aren't, uh, you're not maybe as recovering as as quickly. How does that change the conversation that you need to have when you're trying to sustain success? Two, two points there, really. One is I'm a great believer. Alistair is a great believer.
0: Johnny is a great believer in efficiency, you know, physiological efficiency. The more you do it, by and large, the more efficient you get at it. Rightly or wrongly, it's a core belief so that's that's one thing the other thing is there are certain things that i realise that we're not going to develop now we're not going to make alistair go from a a man who can only just about run 400 meters in 58 seconds to get him to run 52 seconds so there's a limited amount of value in whereas when he was at 16 i didn't know whether or not the training would whether he was, had a trainability, if you like to call it that, um, in that area or not. And so we're not, whilst we're trying to maintain the speed that he's got, we're not trying to develop the speed that he's got. Those would be different from what we were doing in 2010, 2011, 2012. But the core of it, as I say, is a belief that polarised training, and you'll, know what i mean by that as a as as a physiologist polarised training is at the heart of their success as athletes and it will be going
1: forward so still some challenges to to be had but but thinking of of sustaining performance there but um i just wanted to ask you to zoom out for a moment and and i know a number of coaches listen to the podcast and um I, i wonder if you had a a nugget of wisdom that stood you in good stead that you'd you'd want to pass on. Uh, you you create these forums like an endurance think tank. But if if people are tuning in and listening to to your experience, what what nugget of wisdom have you got for for aspiring coaches or coaches in the middle of their career that you might be able to uh, hand over?
0: I took a long time to work out what I was doing really um i think it took me 10 years to work out what i wanted to to coach Uh, 10 years what level of athletes i wanted to coach 10 years where i wanted to coach and 10 years why i wanted to coach Um, and i think you have to be honest about all of those things and and then once you've done it, once you've worked that out, so, you know, eventually I worked out that I wanted to coach endurance athletes in or, in or close to a university environment because I believe that um, in the formative years, they need um, their better athletes from having studied and acquired qualifications that will enable them to have a career after or alongside. Uh, depending on the level of the athlete um so i don't believe in being a full-time athlete at the expense of acquiring qualifications um so uh, you know i I, I eventually worked all that out um i wanted to coach good athletes you know self-motivated athletes and um and so on and so forth and um but as a younger coach I, i i definitely was um too intense I measured everything. I measured every session, everything I could. In those days, we didn't have wear, you know, wearables that so you could measure everything. It's a bigger problem now than it was then. Um, but I was keen to know everything about, every, you know, all my athletes. And in some some ways, you know, by letting go a bit of the reins, the athletes got more autonomy, better decision making, better judgment calls themselves less reliant apart from on the fundamentals on the coach that's not a bad thing that's something to be encouraged um samuel beckett has come up with a phrase that i loved and ended one or two of my talks to coaches which i enjoy doing um i feel very much uh, i've got something to offer and he he his phrase was it was a question, really. Have you ever tried and have you ever failed? No matter. Try again. Fail again. Fail better. Mm. And I think a lot of sport is like that, certainly for athletes. I mean, there's a guy just broken the pole vault world record, mm. but he'll end up with a failure because he'll put the bar up and he'll knock it off. Golfers may win two or three tournaments a year, lose most, you know. Um failing and reflecting and being honest about it is critical to learning. And I've failed a lot, um, but I've failed better. Mm. Love that.
1: Well, I'm really appreciative of your wisdom today, Malcolm. Thank you so much for the the conversation. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. And um, what I'm just keen to ask you, because it doesn't sound like you've Retired. <laughs> you you have retired, but you're still really active in this space. So, um, just just the last question, really. What's what's left for you to do? And if there's any way in which people can connect with what you're up to, um, please say so that they can they can tap into that.
0: Well, it's a, a bit of a watershed for me, really, Steve. Um, you know, I was delighted to be asked to do this because um, my failures passed on to others can maybe make people reflect and think a wee bit about um about where they're going and certainly that that notion that it took me a long time to realize what I wanted to do as a coach and how I wanted to coach and what my philosophy was um is important um as I say a bit of a crossroads I've done some work for british athletics um I'm mentoring locally in Leeds um and I'd be delighted to um talk to any coaches either on an informal basis or potentially a more formal basis if if, if required. And if, if it fits, um, at the end of the day, science and technology has taken us a massive way in terms of understanding human beings, but human beings are massively <laughs> complicated. And sometimes just sharing that with another coach or two helps, I think.
1: Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll definitely provide any links um, in the show notes of the the episode. So, um, Malcolm just leaves me to say thank you so much. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Steve. If you'd like to follow Malcolm further, you can do so on Twitter at MalkTheCoach. the coach. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at ingham underscore steve. We're also updating more and more on the supporting champions company profile on LinkedIn. You can subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Join us next time when I'll be talking with one of the athletes that I spent perhaps the most time working with through my career. And that is James Cracknell.